From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Mira Bartok, and I'll be reading from my book, The Memory Palace, which is an illustrated memoir about growing up with my schizophrenic mother, who had been a musical prodigy before she became ill. It's also about my own struggle with traumatic brain injury and memory loss following a car accident at age 40. My mother ended up homeless for 17 years, and during that time, we wrote each other via post office boxes. At the end of her life, we were reunited along with my older sister. As my mother lay dying, I discovered a sock full of keys. One opened up a storage room at U-Haul, full of childhood ephemera and 17 years of diaries. Today I'm going to read from a chapter called Cave Girl, which begins with an excerpt from one of my mother's diaries. The excerpt is called Movies I Wish I Had Never Seen. You should also know that each chapter begins with a picture I painted that I associate with a past event. The picture that begins Cave Girl is a museum diorama of a triceratops. Movies I Wish I Had Never Seen Awoke hearing my curses echo of a life under thieves. Dreamed that Myra tells me she works taking care of a boy. I tell her the boy is 56, a pedophile on the lamb. I ask if the other daughter isn't a whorehouse, but she remains silent. Later, I walked to Fairview Hospital for dollar coffee, stopped at U-Haul for red thread, spent nights sleeping at the rapid transit station on hard bench, $3.70 supper, 50 cents tea, $3 for one pack of cigarettes. B is for bastards. Think of all words beginning with B to control rage. Breezy, bestial, bewitched. The Bactrian camel has two humps. The Arabian dromedary has only one. Baron, in Britain, lowest grade of nobility, a cut of mutton or lamb, two loins and hind legs, as in a baron of beef. Baron, an air-cooled gas-operated machine gun that uses three o three caliber ammo fired from the shoulder. I can think of a few men I'd like to use that baby on. B is for babies. Where did my little girls go? Sometimes I'll watch movies to forget. Tonight... Highlight of evening at the Manor Motel. Gloria Swanson and William Holden in Sunset Boulevard made me think of all the movies I wish I had never seen. Gone with the Wind, Wuthering Heights, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Kramer vs. Kramer, One Million Years B.C., and all Tennessee Williams plays put on screen. Cave Girl in my mother's storage unit, I found a box of my favorite books from childhood, The Call of the Wild, Robinson Crusoe, The Jungle Book. She had kept all my adventure books and the ones about Arctic exploration, ancient civilizations, and prehistoric worlds. At the bottom was a tattered red book on dinosaurs that she had covered to protect against further decline. Inside, tucked between two pages, was a picture of piano keys, like the one I found inside the book of Russian fairy tales. In another section of the book, marking a chapter on glyptodons, was a note torn from one of her diaries. February 28, 2001. Awake to usual Gauguin dawn. No need to read mysteries. Life is a mystery. I am still the stepchild of the universe. I miss Rachel very much. She lives on a ship and plans to return home in the spring. 
When I think of Myra, I think of Mozart and his early sonatas. Why did she choose that book and not another? Did she, like me, dream of exploring ancient lands? In her letters, she said that she time-traveled, but often against her will. When she took me to the Museum of Natural History in Cleveland a lifetime ago, did she stare at the dioramas and wish she could climb inside? I wanted to crawl through the glass and enter the timeless world of Inuit hunters searching for seals or creep beneath the shade of an African baobab tree. I longed to enter the den of stuffed wolves, curl up beside them, and sleep for a while. I made my first diorama when I was ten. I built all of Africa in a day, tiny plastic babies arranged in a circle, snapdragons for lions, and small animals made from clay. I filled up shoeboxes with the Amazon, the Ice Age, and the pyramids at Giza. Once I built the Mesozoic Era, 180 million years in a box, moss, ferns, pebbles, and chicken bones for fossilized remains. A lifetime later, I am building a world inside my head. I run down narrow staircases, dark halls, and passageways, chased by the fear of forgetting. Inside a room is a diorama from deep time, when dinosaurs ruled the earth. In 1969, the year our mother's younger cousin Philip shipped out for Vietnam, our father stopped sending us child support. I turned 10 years old. I wondered if we would ever see Philip or our father again, and if, when the astronauts finally landed on the moon, they would find dinosaur bones buried beneath the rocks. How fast does light travel, I wondered. Where does our father sleep? How far is the nearest star? My sister Rachel thinks about the moon all the time. She'd fly to other galaxies if she could. She is eleven and a half going on twenty and wants to travel as far away from our mother as she can. She and her friends spray lemongo lightly on their hair to make it look kissed by the sun, as if they've all just come back from Hawaii. They write secret messages to boys they like, nasty notes to ones they find distasteful and rude. They gather in small groups and discuss which boys are cute, which ones are ugly and dumb. Rachel, who doesn't have to try hard to be pretty, primps and preens, tying little bows in her thick auburn hair. She knows the words to all the new songs. Sugar, sugar by the Archies, build me a buttercup by the Foundations, time of the season by the Zombies. My favorite records are a 1959 Folkways recording of the Bulgarian Women's Choir and Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. But I keep that information to myself. Inside our apartment on Triscuit Road, the air feels tropical. It's a cold morning in late February, but you never know it with the heat blasting from the radiators. My mother walks into my sister's in my bedroom wearing only a bra and panties, a wet washcloth stuck in her cleavage to cool her down. I am getting ready for school. We're going to a movie today, just you and me, she says. You'll like it. It's about dinosaurs, one million years B.C., starring Raquel Welsh. I called the school and told them you were sick. Happy birthday, baby. The year before, on my ninth birthday, my grandfather took me to the pound to pick out a puppy. I chose a tan and white collie terrier mutt and named her Ginger. Pets are forbidden in our apartment, so whenever she barks, I lecture her on the benefits of being silent and invisible. 
I follow my mother into the living room, Ginger close at my heels. My mother flips on the record player and the sound of trumpets fills the air, music of glory and pronouncement. It's her favorite Spanish bullfight album. She is in her Latin phase. After the bullfight songs, she will probably put on Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass or some steamy Brazilian jazz. Maybe we should go on a day I don't have school. You sound just like Grandma. Now get ready and don't dress like a bum. My mother sometimes takes me out of school to see James Bond films with sexy lady spies and masked men in speedboats shooting guns. There are signs embedded in the Bond films, symbols laden with meaning, clues that can unlock a code she'll decipher later on. Will she find messages in the dinosaur movie, too? My mother wants to take me to a beauty salon to get my first real haircut and manicure before the matinee. My grandfather usually cuts my hair. He makes me wash it with soap and icy water in the basement sink to save on money. In the summer, he sets up a chair on his front lawn, places a bowl on my head, and trims around it. Neighbors come out of their houses to watch the spectacle. After he cuts my hair, I look like Moe from the Three Stooges. Patty from across the street runs over to console me, tells me it isn't so bad, and offers me her half-eaten fudgesicle. In the fancy salon, the hairdresser sculpts my hair into a stylish flip with a mini rat's nest teased up the back of my head. I poke the nest with my finger. It feels like the wad of steel wool Grandma uses to clean her pots. My mother gets her hair done, too, reads a magazine while she sits under a giant silver dome. Meanwhile, the manicurist dips my fingers into soapy green water. My mother, who has been on welfare since our father stopped sending money, pays the lady out of what's left from her monthly check. Sometimes she spends all of it by the middle of the month, buys a fancy fountain pen for herself, several pounds of frozen shrimp, some T-bone steaks, or takes the three of us to a play. When my mother and I leave the salon, I hold my hands and arms in front of me, fingers fanned out so I don't smear my newly painted nails. I keep my head stiff so my hairdo stays in place. Put your hands down, my mother says. You look like a zombie. Did I ever tell you how your grandpa rubbed bacon fat on my hair to make it shine when I was your age? A pack of dogs used to follow me all the way to school. We laugh. My mother takes my hand in hers, and we walk like that all the way to the show. We arrive just before the rain. The theater is almost empty. We sit down in front of a middle-aged bald man just as the lights dim and the big red curtains part. The narrator of the movie tells us that this is a story of a harsh and unfriendly world early in the morning of time. He says that there are creatures that sit and wait, beasts who must kill to survive. Clouds swirl across the screen, something explodes, and lava pours down a mountain into a river of fire. But after the lava scene, a scruffy, dark-haired caveman appears, wrestling with a warthog. Another man, his father, pulls an animal horn from his loincloth and hands it to the warthog wrestling son. The son blows the horn, pounds his fake fur-covered chest, then the shaggy tribe squats in a circle, rips the warthog wide open with their hands and teeth, and begins to gorge. The men remind me of my grandfather, how he shovels down a plate of greasy lamb.
A giant iguana comes on the screen, then a fake brontosaurus, and a live tarantula blown up as big as a ten-story building. Other creatures come and go, chomping off heads and knocking each other off cliffs and sand dunes. Suddenly, from the primordial mist, a nubile bronzed Raquel Welsh appears, scanning the horizon for mega-beasts. Goya Shahor, my mother says. She's a bigger slut than Liz Taylor. We get a glimpse of silky thigh beneath the cave girl's animal skin skirt and a bird's-eye view of Raquel's cleavage bursting out from her top. Her unblemished body and luxurious hair remind me of Barbie and the teenage girls in my Archie comic books. Having fun, asks my mother, a bit too loudly. Like the movie? I whisper yes in her ear and ask her to lower her voice. Don't shush me, honey. I'm not speaking too loud. So do you want a milkshake or a pop? Aren't you thirsty? I sure am. Maybe later, I say. On screen, the story flips back to the dark tribe dining on Warthog. The father steals his son's hunk of meat. A fight ensues, and the son falls off a cliff. The son is alone, standing in a vast, barren desert. Giant tarantulas appear, a brontosaurus, and smaller but deadly dinosaurs. The young, hairy man escapes from death and stumbles beneath the terrible sun. He finally collapses. Nearby, at the shore of the sea, barely clad blonde women giggle and spear fish for their dinner. The young women see the fallen man and run over to help. Lurking nearby is a mega-turtle. Luckily, Raquel is at the ready. I picture myself in her place, spear in hand. She tries single-handedly to battle the beast, even though it is a hundred times her size. Someone from her tribe blows on a conch shell, and other smooth-skinned blondes arrive. My mother says, I'm going out to smoke. After she leaves, the man behind me leans forward and whispers into my hair, Hey, where'd your mom go? Want some popcorn, honey? Have a piece. I pretend not to hear him and sink lower into my seat. The blonde people look like they could all be related to Debbie and Linda Camps, the nice German-American family in our neighborhood who belong to various athletic and social clubs. My mother says their family breeds Hitler youth because their daughters are in Girl Scouts. Those people are Nazis. Just look at their hair, their little brown shirts. The blonde tribe on screen could be from the tribe of the Bruners, the Bentes, the Buds, or the other families that are blonde and whose last names begin with B on our grandparents' street. Why do all their names begin with B? My mother wants to know. B, 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 always Bs. What does it mean? Hey, sweetheart. Your hair smells real nice. Raquel and the hairy guy have fallen in love. I hope nobody kisses, especially with tongues. I sink down farther into my seat. Everything looks phony, and yet, even though I can see they're really lizards and turtles enlarged with cameras to look big and scary, they are scary in a way, the way the creatures come out of nowhere and stampede the tribe just when everyone is having such a nice swim in the river. It's the way they devour a man, like he's just a little bug, that sends a shiver down my spine. I can feel the man's hot breath on the back of my neck again. Something about him reminds me of my grandfather, but I can't put my finger on it. Maybe it's the acrid scent of beer and cigarettes, maybe something else. Where's your mom? She leave? I consider leaving. 
But what if my mother came back and I wasn't there because I was outside looking for her? Then she'd be alone with the man. He might do something to her, like touch her or say dirty words. Or she'd think I disappeared and she'd call the police. What if she called the police and they thought she was crazy for taking me out of school for the day? Maybe they'd put her in jail. Hey, doll, come and sit back here with me. I'll buy you a Coke. I close my eyes and make myself so small I could be a tiny creature inside a shoebox filled with moss and lumps of clay. Better yet, I am hiding behind a rock on screen while a massive horned beast rips off the head of a hissing raptor. My mother returns. The man relaxes into his chair. She's distracted, rummages for something in her purse. Items fall to the floor. A lipstick, a hairbrush, a pack of double mint gum. The man picks up the lipstick that is rolled beneath his seat. When he passes it to her, he leans half out of his chair and hovers over her a bit too long. It reminds me of the way the hairy dark men in the movie size a woman up with just one glance, then grab her by her hair and drag her to a corner of their cave. It reminds me of the way they eat the warthog. My mother twists and turns in her seat. She can't get comfortable. The scene we're watching looks like it could turn romantic, and I can't get comfortable either. I have to pee, but I'm worried that if I leave, she'll leave again, too. I whisper to her that I have to go to the bathroom. Do you want to come with me, I ask? I just went. You go. I'll watch our coats. Don't leave, I say. I'll be right back. Stay right here. In the lobby, I can hear thunder and lightning from outside. We forgot to bring umbrellas. It's February, and there should be snow. Will things always be like this? Strange, unpredictable weather, creepy men lurking about, our father lost in a jungle, my mother one foot in this world, the other in a dream? When I return, my mother is gone again, and so is the man. My red dinosaur book tells me that the Ariops was the lord and tyrant of his day. His mouth was so wide and deep that he could have swallowed a man whole. My book about the North Pole tells me that if you are trapped in the sea ice and starving, you can always boil your boots in a pinch. But nothing, not one single book, can tell me how to find my mother in the rain. The movie ends. Should I leave? I have money hidden in the bottom of my shoe. I know which bus to take back home. The way back is much shorter than taking the subway alone in the dark after a day at the museum. It's not too bad if you look at it that way. Then, outside, beneath the marquee, I see a woman with dark curly hair, smoking in the thrumming rain. She is alone and muttering to herself. Something about her reminds me of the old lady downtown who wears three coats and asks people on the street for a dime. I run to my mother, even though she could be that lady with the coats, the lady who has no teeth and who talks to her hands. When my mother sees me, she hugs me close. I was worried sick about you, she says. Where the hell did you go? The walk to our apartment is just over a mile, but it seems far in the damp cold. I'm tired and want to take the bus, but my mother says that someone could commandeer the vehicle and take us out of the city to a place where they hook up the hearts of Jews to machines. Even if they didn't kidnap us on the bus... A man sitting across the aisle could take our picture with an X-ray vision camera hidden in his shoe, just like on the TV show Get Smart.
and that would just help the enemy along with their plan. At least when you're walking, you can run if you're being followed. If you have a knife in your pocket, like my mother does some days, even better. By the time we get home, my feet are soaked, my hairdo has fallen flipless and limp. The nest on the back of my head is a damp, tangled blob. I study my fingernails under the light to see if they got damaged from the storm. They are still pearly pink. Later that evening, my sister and I are playing sorry in her room. You don't have to think that much to play. Sorry is a game of chance, the only game Rachel doesn't always win. We scurry our blue and red pieces around the board, knocking each other's men out of their little colored squares. Our mother calls me to her room. I'll be right back, I say to Rachel. Don't cheat, even though I know she never does. In her bedroom, my mother lounges in a short beige slip among the disheveled sheets. The song Lemon Tree plays softly on the radio. She has the heat turned up high. The radiator by the window hisses and spits out steam. Was this what it was like in a primeval jungle, this clammy prison of a room? My mother's eyes are part wolf, part human. The suspicious eyes that dart from here to there, the red eyes of all-night rants, the prelude to another round of shock treatments. Do you like this song, she asks. It's okay. Well, it's not Beethoven, she says, but I like it. So what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, an artist. The rain outside that turned to sleet has turned to snow. I can hear wind rattling the loose glass in the window frames. Everything needs fixing in our place. The windows, the stove, the toilet that clogs up. You'll always be my little Picasso. But don't you want to get married and have babies, too? I don't know. I guess. My mother is staring at a stack of magazines at the foot of her bed. She points to them and says, Pick that up, the one on the top. I want to show you something. She lights a cigarette and motions me to climb up beside her. I'm in the middle of a game. My mother pats the bed. Come on, I'm not going to bite you. I clamber up over her legs gingerly, a vigilant cat, placing myself as far as I can from her sticky flesh. Come closer. She reaches for the magazine I'm holding from the top of the pile. Look, she says. My mother taps her finger hard on a picture that, at first glance, looks like a bunch of people playing Twister. Then I realize it's a large group of naked white people doing something else. Men and women are licking and thrusting and kissing every possible body part. It's hard to tell where one person begins and another ends. Do you know what they're doing, she asks. No, I say. Can I go back now? Has a man ever done that to you? She points to a bearded blonde guy entering a young Barbie-like model from behind. The woman looks a lot like Raquel Welch. Could be the cave girl I just saw? You don't know this yet, she says, but there are men who want to do that to you. I know they want to do it to your sister. She's asking for trouble. I don't want to look at the picture or my mother, so I stare at the floor. There are plates of old food and stacks of Playboy and penthouse, piles of books and newspapers everywhere, baskets of dirty laundry, my old green Mr. Magoo sippy cup overflowing with cigarette butts. 
There is a picture of flowers I made for her, crumbled and coffee-stained, sticking out from beneath the bed. I can hear Ginger whining and scratching at the bedroom door. Ginger has to go, I say. She's crying. My mother sighs, waves me off the bed. Oh, all right. Why don't you be a good girl and go buy your old lady a pack of Benson hedges? I'm all out. I sneak out of the building so no one can see I have a dog, and we walk down to the corner store. When a man honks his horn at another driver, I jump and Ginger trembles. I bend over to rub the soft white stripe down the front of her face. It's okay, girl, I say, kissing her nose. It's okay. Ginger is jumpy like me, sensitive to sound and sudden movements. I'm nervous at the counter, afraid the clerk will think I'm buying cigarettes for myself. I search my pockets for my mother's $5 bill. There's money left over, so I get some cherry licorice for Rachel, malted milk balls for me. Ginger and I race home in the dark. It seems I can never finish anything, a game, a drawing, or a song on my violin. By the time I get back, my mother is dozing. The radio is blasting something Cuban with lots of brass and drums. I put out my mother's cigarette, resting precariously on the edge of an ashtray, and shut her door. My sister is already in bed, reading, our board game scattered on the floor. The phone rings in the kitchen. I go to pick it up. Hello, I say. Myra? The man's voice sounds uncertain, like he doesn't quite know who I am. But I know it's my father, even though I haven't talked to him since I was four. I barely remember him. He was the man who hid upstairs in a studio for hours and wouldn't let me up there to play. He's the electrical smell of a train leaving a station. A tall, dark-haired man in a suit, photographed, laughing at a bar. He was a serious face on the back of a serious-looking book my mother keeps on the nightstand by her bed. My father is a stern figure standing at the edge of a dune, looking out at a cold blue lake. On the phone... He says he wants my sister and me to come live with him and says I have to decide right away. Where is he calling from? Is he going to save us? Should I tell him about the man at the movies who leaned forward and smelled my hair? I'll go get Mom, I say. No, just tell me yes or no. I can't. Why? Who will take care of her? Does my father tell me that he lives in a strange and beautiful jungle where there are peacocks and tigers and all sorts of monkeys and birds like the worlds I want to explore? And if I move there, we can eat snake meat when we're hungry, grab breadfruit right off the trees? Does he tell me we can ride wild horses? Are there wolves where he lives? Are there bears? Decide now. I'm calling long distance. I can't. I promised. All right, if that's what you want. Don't you want to say hi to Rachel? I'll go get her. Just a sec. I'm saying goodbye. Hello? Are you there? Hello? Always there is that memory of holding on to the heavy black phone, whispering hello into a void, and the nothing at the other end, and the waiting for the nothing to become a voice, but it never does, and the creeping back down the hall to bed, and the lights still on in my mother's room, radio still blaring, my sister asleep in our room, open book upon her chest, the sound of her little girl breath soft and steady. 
She's the only one I can count on in this changing world, to play a game, to race with across the street, to help me write a poem. In 1969, I am filled with so many questions. When did the first birds appear? What exactly is a sauropod? When will my mother stop being crazy? Will our father ever return now that I made him mad? We are entering a new era. I can feel it. Something has shifted, is changing fast. When did she start buying those magazines? Why did all the dinosaurs die? How smooth is the surface of the moon? Will I ever reach the Serengeti or the Pole? When will the soldiers come home, Cousin Philip, who is somewhere in the jungles of Vietnam, all of our neighbor's sons? Who will come to save us now? Will Jesus or our father? Will Neil Armstrong and his crew? To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.